You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Nick Baltus and I, Niels Kastroblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Nick, it's great to be back with you this week. So much continues to happen between our conversations. How are you doing? I am doing well, Niels. Uh, in a good, uh, good morning. Uh, it's a beautiful Friday, finally. Summer came to London. Let's see for how long. Exactly. It is a beautiful morning. Not so beautiful, though, when it comes to my technology, as I was just telling you, uh, all my, my work this morning and preparing for our conversation today seems to be stuck somewhere in the cloud. So I'm kind of flying with uh, half my notes today, but I'm sure we'll be, we'll be just fine uh, as we usually are. So... Um, before we dive into uh, the topics, and I think we actually have some good ones uh, as usual and some uh, very good research papers to dive into uh, as we normally do as well. Uh, I just wanted to ask you because it's always interesting to hear, um, you know, what's been on your radar for the last uh, few weeks? What are you hearing from clients, prospects, colleagues uh, in terms of what's going on in kind of our quant world? Uh, so what I would say, I think it's a it's slightly a continuation of what I think we discussed, um, you know, up close to two months back. It's this um, kind of fine balance between how defensive uh, the appetite is versus how much of a risk on mood the, you know, in, is, is out there. Uh, you know, the reality is that, um, you know, the market is now in a in a in a bull technical uh, regime already. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I think the recession probability is not little to be ignored. Um, you know, certainly one of the things we're discussing is how commodities have responded year to date, which is not necessarily what we were potentially expecting beginning of the year, the super cycle that, for example, Jeff Kerry, uh, you know, was discussing about back then. In our favorite kind of topic, more on the CTA slash cross asset space, I would say that discussions have intensified, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a good way. And I think back to the discussion we had two months ago. It's, this is this is the kind of delayed response in a good way as a reflection of 2022 performance. Certainly, March was an event, uh, but at the same time, it was not unexpected. You know, given that it happened, the performance was not unexpected. I think we're going to cover some of those points later on, anyway. Um, so, the appreciation of you know of CTA profiles, whether these are explicitly trend or possibly diluted or diversified with more like carry or reversion dynamics embedded um you know it's a, it's a topic we're spending some time on but certainly that space has uh, has kept us quite busy there are some good discussions with uh, with a broad range of clients globally so yeah, yeah. I, I would say like a merge of things yeah no I, I i seem to be picking up some of the same vibes and i do agree there are definitely more constructive conversations going on uh, about these uh, topics before we also dive into uh, our questions and topics, I would normally give a quick update on the the, uh, the trend environment. Actually, as I mentioned before, my notes is are gone, but from memory at least, I would say June have started okay for, for CTAs, uh, up a little bit. Uh, again, some of the more interesting markets that we don't necessarily talk about so much are driving performance still, a little bit like in May where we have like Japanese equities doing pretty well. 
some of the metals doing well. Uh, not so much the grains this month from memory, but then you had something like live cattle, which is doing well, and sugar, which is doing well. So some of these slightly less talked about markets, which is beautiful, of course, from a trend following point of view, because it it shows you the um, the importance of uh, of diversification, uh, and I mean true diversification. My own trend barometer is really stuck in neutral zone, has been for a while, has been all year pretty much, and of course you could say that reflects pretty well how the year has gone. So so far, it's been a little bit up, a little bit down, but not going a, a, a great places uh, so far, except for one or two outlier managers, perhaps. But when I just look at the uh, performance so far, uh, month to date, uh, such NCTA index is up 20 bips uh, as of uh, Wednesday night, and uh, it's down about 1.1% for the year. The short-term traders index down 40 bips or so, down three and a half for the year, struggling a bit, I would say. And then the trend index up about 40 basis points so far in June and still down 1.4% for the year. But certainly coming back from the doldrums of March, which we have covered a few times uh, in recent weeks. Now, um, a couple of questions, quick questions. I don't think they will take long and they will dive into the um, to the papers we have. But David wrote in uh, following the, um, the uh, let's call it this way, emotionally charged uh, CTA ETF debate we had last week with Tim and, and Andrew. And um, we may come to that, uh, actually, you and I, a little bit later. But just in terms of a question, uh, David writes, a question sparked by the big CTA ETF debate. First, on the issue of lag signals for replicators, can this be justified in the same way as many CTAs are long-term or wear, quote-unquote, loose pants? I think what David is, is, is saying, and I think this is the question I would pose to you, Nick, is... Is the kind of the speed of execution, meaning if you're a long-term trend follower, do you actually have to execute uh, based on your signal uh, within a certain, you know, number of hours or days? Or is it actually not that important whether you uh, execute uh, the same day or the next day or the day after? And I think it comes from the fact that that Andrew's ETFs only execute trades on a weekly basis, which is actually so how some of the trend followers began back in the day. I think Don, actually, I think we began back in the 70s only trading once a week. Uh, and I don't remember when it changed, but of course, technology back then was was very different from today. Have you, I mean, have you any thoughts about this? Yeah, for sure I do. For sure I do. Um, and just to clarify, is it the question more along the lines of executing on a weekly basis or rather calculating a target weight or a target exposure and then spending a week before deploying it. Because no, you can take the question in, in, in both ways, right? And I can happily opine on both, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, um, a, a quick comment on both uh, because I have okay. no idea okay. what David meant, frankly. So so yeah. l l let's suppose the question is is more along the lines of I have a signal, but then you know it takes me some time to execute that signal. Uh, so it takes me like a couple of days, possibly like, you know, smoothing it out over the course of the week. So unless there are any liquidity considerations on the markets to be traded, I cannot see the reason why, you know, somebody should wait. You know, in other words, delaying execution is an implicit way of using a longer term speed mm -hmm. because you dilute your reactivity. Like, you know, you have a signal potentially changing direction unless you do expect some form of confirmation, there's no economic reason why wait for it. Mm -hmm. If the markets mean revert in the very short term, I think that's more of a signal treatment on execution treatment. You know, we would have to go further back 
before we even get to the point of executing, we should just make the signal informed of the fact of some sort of short-term mean reversion. But from an execution standpoint, unless there are any liquidity considerations, which again, somebody should possibly consider in the optimizations phase as opposed to the actual execution phase, I don't think there's any particular reason of diluting the reactivity of the overall program. You know, it's equivalent to say, right. I'm going to execute on the day, but I'm going to use like a longer window in my, in my signal in, in, right. in some very heuristical sense. But, sure. But in, in fairness, I also think there is a little bit of a point in saying that for a long-term trend follower, the execution timing, so to speak, is we're not so sensitive to that. If you're a long-term trend follower, whether you execute the same day or the next day on the open or even the day after, I've certainly come across managers who who does that as well. Um, it's not that there is a, a massive change in performance. And I think in a sense that also goes to the robustness of the strategy that it's not that unlike you could say short-term strategies where clearly you have to be very quick and 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 otherwise you may remove all the performance uh you know if your execution isn't as you expect for sure for sure i mean i i don't disagree with that statement i think that's a fair statement like you know you know taking a day or two before you execute a you know a three or a six month look back window uh, allocation is is not going to have a material impact. Now, if it's like you know ten or twenty days, then we can possibly have a conversation right. specifically around turning points. So, if we take the second variation of the question, that being, you know, is it better doing an execution of a program on a weekly basis or on a monthly basis or on a daily basis? My view would be that information flows. There's no reason why, at the very least, monitor the activity of the overall strategy on a daily basis. And then to the extent necessary, that being a threshold, that being some form of um, kind of deviation of the overall profile to the last executed profile being different by a number, then possibly you know, worth worth executing. So I think this is introducing some path dependency. Now, let's think about March. This was a move that happened over the course of like a day and a half. And it was like this Friday and Monday or something like that, right? Now, if... If you coincidentally had a Thursday to Thursday rebalancing schedule, it is very likely you wouldn't have reduced your risk in the rates markets up until the whole week has gone past. Or let's go back to the 5th of Feb in 2018, similar story. So I think there's, there's value in monitoring how positions and signals move on a daily basis. Deployment of those signals is another question, but I don't think it's fair to say I'm doing it every week and then I'm I'm going to bed for like a week and then I kind of wake up the week after. But that's my view. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, the next one is from Oliver. Oliver actually had a question last week for the two, um, for Andrew and Tim, which they, uh, I think, briefly commented on. Um, but there was another question that we just didn't get around to. And I'm not even so sure it's much of a question. It could be more of a statement or clarification. But Oliver wrote me, long-term expected returns of assets are interesting in theory, but not necessarily entirely relevant for an individual person's investment horizon. We all live only once and we only get one investment path to take. Trend seems way less path dependent and long uh, than long only stocks or bonds, which can suffer decades of negative returns. So trend could significantly reduce sequence of returns risk in retirement. Trend following, of course, can be flat uh, return-wise for a long time, but not as negative as stocks slash bonds. Also, it doesn't matter much when you enter trend because there's no mean reversion like with stocks where you might be hesitant to invest at all-time highs just before retirement. 
I mean, I don't know if you have any views, comments to some of these points. I would just start by saying that I generally agree, but of course, I will also say that uh, this thing about people not being hesitant about investing in CTAs at an all-time high, that they definitely are. <laughs> so uh, I think people also try to time their investments in trend uh, as much as they do with stocks, even though I kind of agree that you shouldn't really if you have a long-term horizon, you know, but we all want to try and get in uh, at the low, I, I imagine. I mean, we, we are all after the holy grail, are we, are we not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I think we discussed here several times, you know, whether we, sh- we should we should, and or, or whether we can time uh, trend following. My view here is that, you know, I would not look into stocks and bonds in isolation and then trend following in isolation. Um, and I think both serve a very different purpose. I think stocks and bonds, by the risk premium they embed, ultimately over the longer run, should be compensating for the underlying risk that is taken. Now, the question is, what is the defense if they do not perform? And I think that's where we typically see the value of trends. So I would see, I would see the combination of those rather than each one in isolation. I don't necessarily think that you know, we think, you might have a different opinion, but I don't think trend is on its own an absolute return vehicle that somebody should just run on a 100% basis and you know, completely ignore about everything that happens outside of it. Because that to the point that Oliver is making can be flat for a period of time. And that's precisely the time that possibly beta markets are doing better. So I think of them as a blend, right? And that reduces also the temptation of, of, uh, of timing. I, I agree. I agree on that, even though I, uh, I do have some trend-following friends who probably will be listening today who would say, no, no, 100% trend. But in reality, they, they themselves don't do 100% trend, really. Um, but um, but I will say, I think in, in isolate, if we were to look at them in isolation, I will say that I think trend-following is more of a perfect portfolio than just having stocks or just having bonds. But I agree, and this is, of course, what all the evidence suggests as well, uh, that a blend of these things uh, can be incredibly powerful. Uh, so, um, so I don't think we'll find any disagreement on that, Nick. Now, I think, I think, I think, I think the last point I would make in isolation, I would be a bit more uh, prudent on how much shorting I would do in trend following if it were to be just kept in isolation, because I think you know human behavior responds very differently to gains versus losses, and this is very asymmetric. You know, and five dollar gain does not give us as much pleasure as the pain we get from a $5 loss. And therefore, shorting, specifically markets like equities and rates that are rewarded exposures um, at the same amount as it would be on the long side, is the absolute return to be held in isolation. But again, that's, that's just my view. No, no. I mean, I think that's fine. Uh, and I fully understand where you're coming from. In fact, uh, the last manager we had on our mini CTA series definitely, uh, and I think this was the first time I've heard someone state that explicitly uh, favored long exposure over short. And we know that from the data. We do know that. Now, uh, that does not mean that I'm quite prepared to say that you shouldn't treat uh, your your markets completely equal and with no long bias, because I still think that even the managers that I follow closely and and and, and some of our colleagues, um, the returns they put up by just doing things the simple way, treating everything equal, taking shorts as much as longs, have put up some pretty compelling return streams over 40, 50 years. So I'm kind of tempted, I'm kind of leaning towards, 
you know, good enough is good enough and don't be too clever because who knows, we can have a decade of massive bear markets in bonds and stocks. In fact, I think, you know, I think interest rates are going to go up for decades actually in a long-term cycle and stocks may also have a, a, a quiet period for a while. So who knows? Anyways, that's not the purpose of our t discussion today because we've got some much more important uh, papers to, to review, courtesy of our friends over at Quantica and AQR. And so the first one uh, that we wanted to uh, dive into uh, comes from Quantica. They, they had two papers that we hadn't talked about much, uh, and the latest one actually just came out a couple of days ago. Uh, so we're going to start with that. That's fresh off uh, the press. And what it's all about is really trying to find what provides, on average, the strongest long-term portfolio diversification benefits uh, in times of equity market trouble uh, or rising interest rates. Uh, funny, we just talked about that before. What they refer to as smart diversification, and of course, we all want to be smart, right? So, um, why don't um, why don't you dive into uh, this, Nick, and and then we'll just see how we go. Sure. So you know, let's go through that. And I think at the outset, um, I would want to say that um, possibly coincidentally, I think I've expressed that view in the um, in the previous podcast. Um, I think the way that you know Quantica is 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 putting out some of, of the research and the mindset around the design uh, pretty much aligns with mine. Um, uh, there's no background whatsoever. It just happens to be that you know I think my philosophy mm -hmm. and theirs seem to be quite aligned. So the purpose of the paper, I think, is kind of threefold. They start by saying, listen, one of the big um, decisions that a trend follower should do is how quickly they should respond to the recent moves. In other words, how quick or slow their speed should be. Now, that by itself can create dispersion of returns between managers. Now, in that context, is there a historical window that you know, ideally over the longer term should have delivered the best sharp ratio. That's point number one. Point number two being, what is completely ignorant of what is the better, from a sharp ratio perspective, historical window? What is the window that can explain better CTA returns, which is now more of a replication type of a kind of a philosophical point? You know, if you were to blindfoldedly look into a CTA space, look into the aggregate exposures, and then just find a uh, a program that imitates from a correlation standpoint. And I know that you also made the point last week as to correlation is not performance, and I completely agree with you on this one. And then the third point they're making is, you know, does it happen that this best historical window, by some measure, being also the best from a defense standpoint? You know, mm -hmm. it can very well be the case that you know a twelve-month window has delivered historically the best sharp ratio returns, but not necessarily the best defensive profile during market downturns. Now, just to give kind of the summary of the paper, they basically go down doing a lot of analysis and they say a quarterly look back window, and they think of it in a half-life of an exponentially weighted moving average. So that's more of a kind of longer term window, but the center of the mass, or if you like, the point at which the initial weight drops by a factor of 50%, is three months away from today, but you know, still utilizing the whole history. So that's not the same thing as saying a three-month window. Right. It is possibly more of a six-month window, give or take. But anyhow, a three-month exponential weighted moving average half-life 
has historically delivered the better returns for a CTA program in a stylistic format. Coincidentally, has been the speed that explains better from a correlation standpoint CTA returns. So they look into the SOCGEN index. And at the same time, has delivered historically the best returns in down markets. And the point that they want to make here is that it's not necessarily the case that you have to be extremely fast to be as defensive as possible because there's other things to consider that being costs and false positives. So that's the quick summary. Uh, I can go into snippets of the analysis if you'd want me to. Um, the result that I found quite interesting and that pretty much goes hand in hand with some of the work we have done over the last year or two is that indeed looking into you know, the SOCGEN uh, trend index, a three-month give or take look-back window, you know, 66 business days on a, an exponential wedding moving average, pretty much delivers the higher level of correlation or explanatory power to the aggregate index. I'm not saying everyone does the same. It's just the, in aggregation, you know, if I were to be, for example, in Andrew's shoes, this is the one that will give me the closest from a correlation standpoint profile, the smallest tracking error. So you know, we, we kind of agree with this one. Yeah, we've, we've done the analysis. Yeah, and of course, you you hear a lot of people say that they um, are kind of medium-term trend followers, and and so that kind of ties in with that. I'm not also I'm also not surprised that they find that that's probably you know how uh, managers you know as you say I don't I don't think it's a coincidence as such, but I think that's what what they're they're saying that managers generally seem to have been pretty close to the optimal look back window if they look at returns in the past, uh, I think, back to year 2000 or so. Now, one thing that I'm curious about a little bit is, or what's interesting to me is that I don't think necessarily that all managers do the same, and I don't think that all managers are medium term, but still, to some extent, their returns are not vastly different in the long term. They're probably somewhat different in the shorter term and, and so on and so forth. But also in... Historically, uh, I believe that managers probably have become longer term, actually, in their parameter uh, choices. So I don't know whether you have any any thoughts on, on that. Um, now, well, maybe one thing, and maybe we dive into, as, as again, I'm flying completely blind. I don't have my notes uh, that I wanted to, to bring up with you. But I um, one thing that I think is interesting about this paper, and that is, um, and it ties a little bit into the other paper they have, but we'll come to that. And this is this notion that people believe that you get better protection from shorter-term strategies. This is something that has been hammered over and over and over by mainly the shorter-term managers. And I'm not obviously we can't say that their and their research is conclusive on all fronts, right? But it's pretty objective in that sense in terms of the, what they're trying to achieve here. And I think this might be a little bit surprising to pe for people to know that even if you're not short-term, you can actually deliver great protection at the same time deliver better returns. Maybe the better returns are more logical, but the better protection might be a bit of a surprise for people. Now, when, when we say better protection, of course, we don't mean one-day protection. I mean, a short-term manager can clearly do better on the day suddenly the S&P decides to reverse 5% or 10%. Of course, but investors don't have a one-day time horizon anyway, or investment horizon. So, so uh, I, th I like. I, I, I mean, of course, I like that part of the the the, the conclusion because I 
you know, come from the medium to long term uh, CTA space. But uh, I think it might be a little bit surprising for some people when they hear that. Uh, I wouldn't disagree. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the natural mindset is that the faster you are, the more protection you can achieve. But I think this doesn't account for the fact. So mechanically, it makes sense. Right. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the market operates in this fashion. In other words, shorter moves having more predictability about the subsequent moves. And I think this is the pivotal moment whereby false positives you know, happen to be more often. I think I'm just kind of hypothesizing based on the analysis, right? False positives happen to be more often than not short-term reversions, whereas medium-term reversions are potentially driven by some more macro fundamentals or confirmed by macro fundamentals. By the way, you know, that's that's going to be a good link to, to, to the paper we're going to discuss, discuss later. So I think the gist of the analysis, I think, highlights that point. That short-term mean reversion or a short-term reversion in the signals by you following trends embeds a lot of noise and therefore crystallizing that noise into gain becomes a harder exercise empirically. And I think the medium term is possibly the sweet spot between you being reactive to a turning point, but you're not just a long-only investor that has like you know, a three-year of a look-back window that happens to typically buy equities and rates because precisely over the longer term, these are the positive trends. So without digging into too much the next paper, Nick, I do want to say something so I don't forget. And that is, we shouldn't conclude necessarily that it's the look-back that does all the work, right? The risk management, sure the responsiveness of the risk management plays an equally important role. So I don't, so I've, I've never seen anyone, maybe there is someone out there who might want to do the, the the research and send it to us and we'll talk about it for sure. And, and this is this, well, what if you had two, um, say, medium-term trend-following uh, portfolios and they had exactly the same parameters when it came to look-back window, but they used two very different uh, say, lookbacks for volatility adjustment of positions, for example, that could be interesting to see how that difference uh, would show up in the returns. I don't know necessarily uh, what the conclusion would be, frankly. It obviously depends on what uh, what uh, lookbacks you choose for your volatility um, sensitivity, but but it is just important to, to make that clear we don't necessarily believe that it's the look back that, that does all the heavy lifting. It is it is as much, and I think they point that out either in this paper or the next one, that actually uh, really responsive risk management. And we saw this in, in March. I mean, many managers uh, reduced their positions in fixed income by 50, 60, 70, 80% in matter of days. Of course, if you use dynamic position sizing, if you don't, you have done anything or you would have to wait for your signals to be stopped out. So that is another interesting little discussion, which I don't have any data for. I don't know how one manager uh, without dynamic position sizing uh, handled uh, March in the fixed income uh, specific sector. But uh, but it could have been interesting to um, to see that. Oh, I think I, I completely agree. The, you know, the point on, on reactivity and defensiveness on the downside is a combination of features when it comes to trend. And I think risk management is important. Look back window is important. Even prior positioning to markets you want to be defensive against is also oh, important. Yeah. Right? You, know, you can easily get a defensive profile with a longer term window, but not deploying trends 
when they are in the direction you want to protect against. Like, you know, you don't buy equities if you want an def equity defensive program. But you know, the, I guess the devil is in the details, right? Because you know, a shorter term window across all markets can be responsive across all markets turning in their own merit. Whereas being more equity defensive, that gives you more of, a, of an explicit profile you want to, to, to work against. So I completely agree with you that it's a combination of features. It just happened, obviously, to be that this paper focused on this one. Yes, exactly. And um, narrative also plays a big role, right? Because oh, sure. the narrative that came out where, where people basically said, well, in today's environment, where information is instant, we all more or less have access to the same information, whether you're a retail investor, whether you're a professional investor. We almost everyone have it more or less at the same time. Uh, if we have an internet connection, that is. And that in itself should mean that markets are suddenly different. They're moving more quickly. They're doing this, that, and the other. And I think at least that's how I remember the argument a few years back, not that long ago, why short-term systems would be much better for protecting against things like equity downturns, et cetera, et cetera. But anyways, I just want to put that uh, out there. So, are you ready to talk about something slightly different than price trends? Sure. Because we have one other paper, uh, or we have two other papers, but one paper that came out in April. And this is interesting in the sense that it's a paper from AQR um, who um, came out with a paper called Economic Trend. And they did that because over the last few years, they have uh, deployed an economic trend model within their Managed Futures program. And actually, we had one of the co-authors of the paper, Yao, uh, one of the principals at AQR, on the podcast, and he did talk about it. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, uh, but I the way I remember the conversation is that actually economic trend signals now comprises, you know, even maybe up to 50%, I think, from memory, uh, of their total program. So it is very important to them. And that's why it's important for us to to discuss this. Now, of course, they say in their paper that it's a close relative of price trend following. Um, but, you know, that both approaches aim to capitalize on the tendency of markets to systematically underreact to news. And in recent years, they have used both of these in their offering, as I mentioned. But as I said... Um, I don't have many notes on my side to to uh, offer. So uh, I, again, as you as my guide, Nick, um, can you talk a little bit about um, what they found in their paper about economic trend? Yes, yes. So the underlying premise is, you know, as you said, Niels, um, you know, prices, um, you know, typically follow information flow, uh, but information flow at times cannot or might not be reflected on the prices, but might be reflected on, um, on macro fundamentals. So their point is a historical movement in the price could be a proxy of future performance, but equally we can make the argument that the macroeconomic regime makes some asset classes more likely to perform than others. And therefore, even if the price hasn't caught up, Specifically, and now that's the intersection, if your long-term window is too long-term to be reactive enough, you know, the macro regime can help here. And the, the whole premise around the paper and around the proposal is to say, I mean, I'm looking into growth and I have a proxy about growth, that being some sort of GDP growth or 
possibly these days some sort of now casting variable of economic activity. I'm looking into inflation. You know, they're looking to also international trade. Um, you know, they're looking to monetary policy you know, by looking into, let's say, the two-year bond yield. They're looking to risk aversion. And then they classify the upward or the downward assumed performance of equities, rates, currencies, and commodities in each and every regime. So, for example, in a growth regime, you typically have positive views about equities, not necessarily too positive for fixed income, but positively, um, you know, thinking about commodities, for example, right? So, you know, they then go the extra step of saying, you know, if I monitor those macro regimes and how they evolve through time, then I know that at any point in time, I am in some form of an intersection of macro variables, that can play a positive or a negative outcome for specific asset classes. So then I can build a trend-following program, but instead of me using a signal that comes from a price movement, it comes from the regime. And then I simply just do my classic you know, vol scaling, put everything together to simply reflect directions on the long and the short side that are a reflection of the current economic regime. Now, you said yourself, it's not too different to price trend. And you know, it shouldn't be because, hey, if you're in a high growth regime, most likely equities are going up. So there would be times whereby the regime tells you to go long equities, but the price itself will tell you to go long equities. And they find something like a 40% correlation between the two. And I think where they see value being brought is more on the reactivity front. In other words, if the price trend hasn't caught up yet, but the regime has shifted, then you might be in a, pos you know, in a position of canceling out some exposure or possibly diversifying an exposure that is not accommodated by the macro regime. I'll give you an example because we have actually done similar work here. I think we have discussed it at some point in the past about inflation and growth regimes and so on and so forth, right? Moving into 2023, with some definition of growth, some definition of inflation, we have been in a falling growth and falling inflation period. Even if inflation is high, it's been moderating. Now, historically, that's an environment that promotes allocation into fixed income assets. So now here you are with a long exposure in bonds, while obviously a trend-following program on the price side would be short bonds. So the netting of the two would flat out the March event. Now, is that a data point we can generalize? Not necessarily, but certainly it's a good example. I mean, and what they show in the page is that obviously, you know, price trend and economic trend are similar in terms of capturing price movements, but obviously the generation of the direction comes from a very different landscape. You know, one is more macro-fundamental that seemingly should propagate into prices but hasn't gotten there yet. The other one is purely price-based. It's almost as if you are agnostic about the regime, but hey, it is more likely than not that the regime is kind of connected with the price movement. Otherwise... Even the premise of economic trend doesn't even make any sense whatsoever. So they kind of build price trend, they build economic trend, they kind of compare the two, they showcase that you know, across a range of markets, you know, equities, rates, commodities, and so on and so forth, you get positive performance. And you also get positive performance no matter how you classify the economic regimes or the asset classes. But ballpark, the overall economic trend has comparable sharp ratios to price trend. And even more so, they do a nice analysis basically saying, hey, these are the worst drawdowns of my price trend. Here, your economic trend helped. And these are the worst economic trend drawdowns, but actually price trend has helped. 
So I think the long-term 40% correlation seems to be coming less positive at times that one of the two is in a is in a stress scenario. And that's why they eventually promote the combination. I'm just kind of looking through just some sharp ratios they have, you know, 50 years from the 70s, economic trend 1.1, price trend 1.4, combo 1.5. Um, obviously, everything is gross, of course. I believe here, yes, it is gross, of course. It's more like illustrative, but that's the overall premise. I have a few points, yes. but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pass it yeah, to no, you no. if you have any well, points. I, continue. I'm always interested in your views. Um, I, I, I know you said earlier that I said that they are very close, but I was just quoting their paper saying they are they are closely yes. related because I actually think they're very different. And and I wonder, and maybe I'm being a little bit too much of a purist here, but I I do have a little bit of um, um, difficulty, let's call it that. I find it a little bit difficult to kind of think of economic trend as trend following because I think, I mean, how, how broad should we make the definition of trend? And for me... Trend has is really you know uh, related to to uh, price trend because as, as so, because as soon as you start putting in other factors than price, then you kind of lose the connection between the signal and what the price is doing, and and therefore the performance because you can get a signal, but as you said, the market can do something completely different. And so even if you, so, so I, that, and I don't know how to explain it elegantly uh, as we sit here, but for me, that's a disconnect that I don't like. I think it introduces some, some risks that I can't quite quantify. So, you know, so do you just stay long if the, if it's this growth and, and, and the price are, are going in the opposite direction? And I know, of course, they have rules for all of these things, but still, it is not as clear cut for me as I like it to be, so that's why I'm a little bit cautious about saying, "Oh, it's just economic trend following." It's economic something, but I'm not sure it's trend following. Yeah, I see what you mean. Does that so, make sense? I mean, l- let me play defense without necessarily me reflecting those views, but just for the sake of the debate, right? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not saying of that I'm. A, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a proponent or otherwise. I mean, just for the sake of the debate, I, I would imagine the underlying, I guess the underlying philosophy is that any price movement contains fundamental movement with some noise. Now, if this noise, which is idiosyncratic, possibly it's like geopolitical, whatever you want to call it, or even like market reaction in ways that your price trends do not allow you to really see the true trends, that the macro regime should suggest being there, but somehow it's not there, then simply looking into the regime can allow you to denoise or unmask an underlying price movement upwards that happens to be today a negative historical price return. And therefore, your trend follower would tell you to go short. I'm just kind of trying to think because, you know, you said you you made me think when you said, is it really trend? That's the only way that I can think of it as trend. As in, here is a price trend, add some noise to it. Now you don't observe any trend anymore, but there's actually a a trend underneath. And the only way for you to unmask it is to say, hey, you know what? This is possibly a trend, but I'm not seeing it yet because there's noise around it. I think think that's possibly the only way I can justify that being trend because I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. 
I think actually Jordan, and I forgot Jordan's last name, but I can find it here to make it proper. Yeah, Jordan Brooks. Oh, Jordan Brooks? Um, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, Brooks. Yeah, yes. Brooks. I, I, he actually wrote about this approach uh, a while back, I think in 2016. 2017, right? 2017, 2017 yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think at some point uh, back then they called it something like macro momentum. I kind of like that better, even though we're not here to discuss uh, terminology. It doesn't really matter at all. I just like the fact that when we talk about trend following, we only have to think about something that reacts to price and not now have to worry about is it trend following based on price? Is it trend following based on something else? Uh, and, and also just because the last few years, we've seen so many things that is so unusual. I mean, if you had been given the information back in February that in the next two months, we're going to have three of the largest, or three of the four largest banking um, defaults in the US and Credit Suisse is going to disappear. Would you have said, yeah, that's great for equities. It's going to be higher uh, two months from now. Yeah, I'm not so sure. Right. Yeah, and I and agree. also your point about that a short position, uh, sorry, a long position in bonds based on growth and inflation slowing would have negated the uh, short position that price trend following would have been. Yeah, sure. But it's like a one or two day event. So it has nothing to do with slowing growth or anything else. It was completely no, no. different factors, right? No, I agree so, with you. I agree yeah, with you. So this is why I'm kind of saying, well, you know, yes, it, it, that's pure lock <laughs> or unlock uh, for that matter. Which, by the way, that was the point I wanted to make um, before when you said, yeah, we should also not underestimate in terms of providing protection. We shouldn't underestimate the quote-unquote lock factor there is in terms of how the models are positioned just prior to the crisis happening. That is very... I mean that is random to a large extent, uh, you know, and 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 but it plays a big role. And so sometimes trend followers will get hurt initially, and only if the you know if this crisis continues will really Precisely. benefit. And Precisely. sometimes uh, we will benefit like we did in oil uh, before COVID because we had already gotten short before COVID really became a thing, and so we enjoyed that uh, downward move. So, anyways, so. I mean, the, the last point I would make now, take also the other side, right? Where do I see the challenge in the economic trends? Because you, know, you have to take both sides, right? Oh, yeah. Sure, sure. I mean, yes. When you, when you, yeah. when you comment those things, you have to be like, you know, both sided, uh, I, I would say. So I, I can see some value in it. Now, where do I see the challenge is quite similar to what we have in price trend, but here is a bit more subtle. So what is growth, if I may pose the question? It's, you know, it's, uh, it's GDP growth. Okay, over what horizon I'm going to ask? And here becomes now a definition which has an economic reasoning behind, but at the same time, if it's utilized for positioning, it has some statistical nature as well. You know, if I use a three-month exponential, uh, sorry, a three-month um, GDP growth or a two-year GDP growth, surely I'm going to get the regime with a lag or I'm going to have a few false positives. So I think the definition of the regimes from a macro perspective, it's now the harder part. So seemingly we moved out from the price trend, not necessarily being reflective of future performance at times and therefore you know, requiring some sort of diversification. But it's not too clear to me how GDP growth or inflation changes or any of those macro definitions can be objectively defined. So... Does the regime change every day? No. But does the regime change every three years? Neither. So regimes change 
in some cyclical fashion, but equally, you know, the whole thing is very kind of endogenous. You know, you have to define the regimes to be able to kind of predict them in the first place. You no, know, nobody comes out tomorrow and say, hey, the regime today is this. You make suppositions, right? And I think that's where I'm kind of a bit skeptical as to where this yeah. comes along. I, I think those are great points. And I think it, it, it helps me formulate a little bit what I, what I worry about uh, in this context. Because, I mean, uh, you made the point about growth, but let's talk about recessions. I mean, even the definition of recessions we haven't been able to agree on uh, in, in very recent times. So I think for me, when I think about trend following, I think about something that is very objective. Now, the research part is subjective, but the implementation, if it's done correct and if it's done with 100% discipline and systematically, it is 100% objective. I think what the economic trend to me does, it opens the door for more subjectivity, I wouldn't even. I would. I don't know if I were on a call of discretion, but it certainly it doesn't. It doesn't seem to me as as objective of not. Now that doesn't mean that this is not a good strategy, and that AQR won't find ways to uh, you know make benefit from it. But I do like the disclosure, and this is again just from reading it uh, a few hours ago. They had like a disclaimer at the very end of the paper saying, oh, this is very complicated stuff, etc. It, it reminded me of one of those disclaimers like, don't try this at home. And I think maybe um, <laughs> that's a, a good way to uh, and just let the, uh, the experts uh, do, the, do the thing. Which brings us to the last paper we wanted to talk about, uh, which is, again, from Quantica. And it is, uh, it's from April. So it's definitely, you know, inspired by what happened in March, which we've already touched upon. Um, but the title of the paper, I think, is something like why the long-term benefits of trend following outweigh the short-term pain associated with sudden trend reversals. Again, touching a little bit upon our longer-term timeframes actually fine, even if we have to withstand a little bit of pain and negative volatility from time to time and um, and so on and so forth. So why don't you... Talk a little bit about that paper, what maybe what was different, what stood out to you um, uh, when reading it. So, you know, there's like two, three interesting points with regards to this analysis. So obviously they start from the March event and they try to show, you know, with some stylistic trend following model, um, what was the position prior to the event, post the event, uh, but more importantly, what contributed mostly to the underperformance. Um, then they also bring the example of 2018, uh, the Feb right. uh, move, the Volmageddon, exactly. Uh, they try to kind of compare the two, look into similarities and differences. And then on the back end of that, obviously, two very aggressively negative returns for trend following programs um, make a case about what defensiveness really is and how we should be thinking about defensiveness and convexity in the context of a trend follower. So, that, that's that kind of the gist of the um, of the of the paper. Now going through through some some more details. You know, of, you know, we know March was the event that was primarily driven by by rates, but it's not really the case that something else could have potentially helped. In other words, no no other asset class generated positive return. Certainly not as negative as the rates contribution was, but it was a relatively um, I would say an orchestrated down move. Um, and a similar event was the one that happened in Feb 18. Obviously, at the time, the primary driver were equities, uh, clearly. And, and obviously, the point 
that they make, and it's super clear, and I think we have discussed it now so many times, that prior positioning to a very systemic move is certainly a risk that any trend follower has, but that's exactly what is written on the tin. A reversion is not trend, and a, you know, a trend is not any a reversion. Any investor, I would say. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. So then the point that they try to make is that you know, there's, a, there's a small point in the beginning, that being that the risk allocated to rates in a dynamic positioning program prior to March was significantly overweight rates. So not only did you have rates doing badly, you know, in absolute terms, but also the magnitude of allocation into rates was disproportionately higher. And obviously they make the point, should you control the overall exposure of the asset class contributions? Well, it's a trade-off because, you know, last year you wouldn't have seen the performance you would have had from shorting rates. So possibly you wouldn't be here to even witness the underperformance. And I think that's a very fair statement to be made, right? You know, we only, we know, we only remember the, the, you know, the most recent data point, uh, but we have to look at it in the context of like a... Um, um, I guess, of a multi-year allocation. But the, the more important point to me, which is made here, and I think it's a very interesting one, and I think we also discussed it um, when you were asking me uh, last time or possibly that, you know, the time before, um, you know, as to whether we have or we can think some sort of a top-level risk management, uh, if you like, technique for a trend follower. And the point that I was making is that, you know, it, it is prudent to control concentration risk at the asset level. I think when we have more systemic moves that give rise to more directional bets across the range of markets, this is the time that it's more likely that a systemic move can make the entire ecosystem respond negatively to it. And that's that's exactly what we know we had seen in March. That's exactly what we saw back in February. So it, I think it opens up a discussion point to be made with regards to top-level risk management. Now, setting that aside, I think the last point that we want to make, which is very interesting, and that agrees, again, I was, I, I was talking about the philosophy of some of the Quantica research and how it kind of aligns with, um, with my views. They're looking to the convexity profile of trend followers. So we always talk about trend followers are providing convexity. When the market is in a down move, they deliver positive returns, da-da-da-da-da. What we do not always mention is over what horizon this convexity is delivered. So do you actually get positive skewness in the distribution of your returns on a one-day horizon or on a six-month horizon? And it's absolutely clear that in a bad market movement, day one, a trend following program has actually negative skewness. It, you know, it goes together with it. it, it that, that's, that's what it says on the tin. But then as you said yourself, subject to that move becoming contagious, subject to that move uh, becoming prolonged, that's precisely when the negative trends kick in and then convexity kicks in, you know, kicks in at the end. So they have like a nice chart showing how between like a day to a year, of a investment horizon, the skewness of the distribution, in other words, the convexity, the downside protection you're receiving from a trend follower goes from very negative to actually very positive and picks up around a quarter to two, which coincidentally or not, going back to the point we started our conversation today, this is also kind of the sweet spot from a sharp ratio defense standpoint. So I think obviously they're very, very connected, right? Um, and this last part we have actually done in a different analysis a couple of years back, looking into, you know, um, 
some sort of regression analysis, where does trend deliver maximal convexity? Uh, and I think that's, that's, that's the point they're making. So yeah, the market turned, obviously turned in a very systemic fashion. Most of the markets did not perform. Clearly, there was an underperformance. Reweighting the exposures and controlling risk would have had some trade-off at other times, namely 2022. And ultimately, we should be so, we should be looking into trend not as a single day or a two day or a three day convexity program, but rather as a medium term. That's 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 the gist of it. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, I agree with. What's really interesting about what happened in March, and I don't know if this applies to all managers, but it certainly applies to some managers I know pretty well. And that is that fixed income markets, certainly the in the US had started consolidating and the, the downtrend was actually weakening all the way since October, November last year. So going into March of this year, there was much less momentum to the downside. And so I would, would, would bravely suggest that actually I think most trend followers had probably taken off some of their short risk or short exposure going into March. Now, what people may not know is that actually in the first week of March, the markets broke down and made new lows. And that forces trend-following strategies to open up the risk budget again. And then, two days later, the SVB event happened. So, to to a large degree, we talked about this earlier, about lock-unlock. I think this was like a week of bad timing. I think trend-followers would have had somewhat i mean even though in the big picture it, it it makes no difference i mean performance has come back and and all of that but of course we did have to reduce position sizing considerably uh in the aftermath of what happened because volatility simply exploded but uh i i my guess would be that certainly a large uh, part of managers uh were actually not as exposed meaning they they didn't have exactly this you know they didn't have as much short exposure on going into march as they would have had like four or five months earlier so in that sense that dynamic part of the system uh was actually doing exactly what it was meant to do but when prices then broke down a couple of days before and made new lows then we have no choice than to start adding more risk but it was just a bad time this time around but i think it's important to to, to mention uh, in that uh, context. The other thing they mentioned actually also is what, what people have talked about um, and some of our guests actually uh, that we've had on in the CTA series uh, is doing that. They also offer trend following where they start capping exposure to some sectors to say, for example, not have as much equity beta as, as uh, they would otherwise have because their clients already have equities, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but I think exactly. Quantica concludes that that's not a good idea either. And I think even this year, where we talked about growth uh, slowing and so on and so forth, but actually one of the best sectors this year is actually equities to the long side. Who would have known? So again, sometimes just following um, the data and, and not be too clever about things uh, um, makes it more robust in my opinion, but that's just me. No, I, I don't disagree. I think it ultimately has to do with uh, what um, what investors want to solve for. Um, and I think, yes, you know, this year uh, allowing trends to go long equities certainly has been the best contributor of performance, I believe, you know, year to date. But at the same time, it's it's a good question to be asked as to whether this excess 
equity exposure together with everything else they're holding flashes out as now I have much more equities than what I should have. So I, I, I don't disagree with you. And that goes back even to the point we made in the beginning. It is likely that different look back windows this year hadn't had too much of a different performance, but capping equity exposure, even if on a defensiveness profile is the same thing, would have had an impact. So as I'm calling them, they're imperfect substitutes of delivering defensive profiles. Imperfect, right? Not perfect. Imperfect. Yeah, Yeah, very true. Let's round this conversation off with just maybe uh, a little bit of your thoughts. Uh, in a, a, I think it's been probably the most tweeted about episode I've ever done was last week's episode with Andrew and Tim. Clearly, there were some high emotions. Um, people have kind of sided uh, with either one of them and thought, yeah, that, that was great or that was great. So, But I thought it was overall uh, very useful and uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll do more of these uh, debates, uh, no doubt. There were a couple of themes, though, that I would love just to hear your more objective uh, opinion about, because I think it is uh, interesting. I have my strong views as well, which I only voiced slightly last week. Um, but for example, let me throw it at you. I mean, do you believe that fee reduction is alpha or even pure alpha uh, as one of the discussion points were how do you how do you think about that oh oh god Let, let's open the bag now worms right <laughs> by the way i really really enjoyed it i really really enjoyed it so here's my answer let's see how diplomatic or not i can be uh, <laughs> so if alpha like I think we can agree to disagree on what alpha is not the two of us but i think as an industry right you know alpha strictly speaking is the you know is the regression intercept, right? If you were to have a return profile regressed on whatever the market or you know rewarded exposure, whatever that might be. So, strictly speaking, the term came from an inability of a factor model to explain the returns. So this is the unexplained skill. I'm coming to where I'm going to go, um, but there is something we cannot necessarily explain. So if you cannot explain something by you know, taking on some directional bets, it's more likely skill. So setting aside the econometrics, alpha in one notion it can have is skill. Okay? Now, I'm now trying to contrast a more subtle, um, I guess, definition of alpha, that being the skill of a manager to risk manage, design, uh, maintain, and, and, and provide longevity in a program to the quantification of it, which is purely a number that is left if you take everything else out of the equation. Now, fees in the case of skill is not alpha. But fees in the case of a number that is left if you take everything else out can be the alpha, right? I mean, it, it, it is whatever is left if you take out the 5% return and then, you know, the 2% of, of the charge, that being 3%, right? So, and I think that was partly a bit of a debate between, between the two. You know, if you really look into the numbers and the returns you're getting, surely costs eat up from your gains. But at the same time, I cannot perceive that a simple subtraction, you know, makes the skill of a manager or I guess a team of, 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 of researchers 
less relevant. Which obviously raises another question, that being, and I think that's the true question, are the products appropriately charged? Because now you can bring the two. Is the skill and the cost associated to that skill going hand in hand? Is it appropriately priced? And I think minimizing the cost doesn't do justice to the skill. But overpricing the skill doesn't give justice to the cost. Does it make sense? It it does. I think it does. Right here, right? Yeah, no, no. I think that that was very elegant, actually, like, very diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> but there is IP there to be paid, and I'm saying that in good faith, right? You know, you go and buy a car. You know, you pay something for that car, and if it's more expensive, surely it gives you something more. So I think fees should be a reflection of the skill, of the program, of the experience, of the maintenance of the technology. And it's more of a question if it's fairly priced. That's I think the big question. I worry a little bit that the programs that I have noticed that comes out as suddenly flat fee, low cost, let's call it that, low cost, are simply not performing as well as those that are full cost. And so if I'm being very cheeky, I could say that people who are willing to just reduce fees to make it super cheap, flat, 50 basis points, 85 basis points, whatever. Maybe they're simply not good enough to compete with other people. So the only thing they feel they can do is trying to compete on price. I know that can be a little bit unfair when you hear it, because if you translate that, you could almost say, well, fee reduction is negative alpha, because you probably are not going to return the same amount at the end of the day as the very good managers who can still command full fees or something like no fees. Now, I don't want to get into a big debate with you about it. I'm just going to throw it out there because I think it might provoke a few um, upcoming episodes. Uh, but I have never been a big proponent of just competing on fees. And as I said, I don't see any evidence of those low-cost manage managers or programs performing better uh, in fact, to the contrary. So that's my concern. Anyways, that's controversial, I know. Anyways, one other thing that came out, um, moving swiftly ahead uh, along, uh, one other thing that came out was just another point that I actually think is a pretty good um, discussion point, and that is, is CTA replication models, are they the same as having single manager risk, in your opinion, in reality? Does it matter whether it's replicating an index if you use to do it? or that you're using one or two models in your single manager trend following strategy? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, if, if we're replicating an index which is a combo of managers, one can make the argument we're what we're trying to replicate is a multi-manager product. But certainly our ability to, uh, uh, our ability to mimic that you know, concentrates some risk in the methodology, right? So I, 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 can, I cannot buy the argument that replication is a multi-manager because there's a settling between, like it's not like a fund of funds that is a multi-manager by construction. It's me getting a portfolio of managers and then trying to perform as well as they do in aggregate. So now I'm introducing an extra layer in the food chain. And I think here there is some single manager risk, right? Because I'm deciding upon it, yeah. like you know, 
if you decide upon it and I decide upon it, and then we have like two of us, then it's more like two techniques utilized, right? Yeah. So I think it's more. I, I agree. I think it's a little bit um, being a little bit liberal when you say that buying uh, a certain replicator will eliminate signal manager risk. I don't think you can say that. Well, you can say it, but I, I think you just forget to say that, oh, by the way, you have single replicator risk instead. And that can be equally as big, frankly. If you, if they get it wrong, you know, that's the same as a manager getting it wrong. I say get it wrong, meaning underperforming, overperforming. Whatever. All right, let's leave it at that. That's a good other topic that <laughs> I love I'm sure it. we'll come back to. The final one I wanted to, something I haven't actually thought about um, until uh, last week when we spoke about it, and uh, and I don't I don't know the ETF space so well, frankly. But um, but I think Andrew, in fairness, you know, brought up this point about well, can you just take a single manager strategy and call it an index, and even call it a managed futures index, kind of implying that this is going to track managed futures, and then you launch a strategy on the back of that, because clearly a single strategy is not an index of the industry. So, and I don't even know if there's a question here, but I, I did, it, it did spark some re reflection on my point afterwards saying, well, that's a bit weird if you could just say, well, here's a model and I'm going to call it the managed futures index. Well, it may have nothing to do with managed futures. So I thought that was interesting. And I think this is one problem I generally feel, and I don't know what the rules and regulations are, so I'm just thinking out loud here. I mean, I do think it's a problem if you can just take an index and call, you know, take a back test, call it an index, and then promote that publicly. I think that's a major, major problem because clearly we as managers cannot promote our strategies based on back tests. That's not possible. It shouldn't be possible. No, true, true. I mean, you know, where we sit as a business, obviously sitting on the broker dealer side, um, you know, of an investment bank, you know, what we deliver and what we design ultimately has to have an index format, and that's by regulation. Uh, so ultimately, the way that we can service our clients is, sure. is is for them to getting the performance of the engine that we obviously design as you know, you don't you don't call us a manager strictly speaking, but obviously we know we basically put our IP and our thought process into designing a what can be a managed futures type of a program. Um, and, and, and this is obviously the business under which we operate. Now, I guess the, your point is how that can be not only be an index, but you know, rather than that being an index, also be wrapped into an ETF well, and then use clarify. the back test and so on and so forth, right? Well, let, let me clarify for you, um, just to be sure you understand where, I, where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm not actually referring to anything you do. What I'm referring to was, I think Andrew brought up a point that Tim has something that he calls the Managed Futures Index. And again, apologize if that was not how it was, whether that's not correct. But I think that's what he did. But he said, in reality, it's just a single manager uh, strategy. And it, when you look at the returns of that, it has no resemblance really to a benchmark or an index of Managed Futures Strategies. And I think that was a point. I thought, well, actually, that is a point. But there's probably no rules that prevent you from doing it, I'm sure. But it is a bit misleading uh, is to say, well, fee reduction is the purest form of alpha. It's probably not. Okay, no, no. no, no now I see. Yeah. It's, it's more like a, it's more like a representation risk, right? It's more like a representation risk. Yeah, I think that that that's the right. issue, right? Th that I don't disagree with. So it's one thing to argue that you know, Sockchain City Index somehow becomes a tradable instrument by whatever form that can be. You know, that can be the case sure. with I don't know the managers providing daily liquidity and somebody running that portfolio with the rules of the index itself. And I don't know. 
um, condensing the information and, 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 and I guess diluting the cross-section by saying I have an index that does that, but, you know, with a tracking error. That I can that, that I can see as a as a as a debate. Yeah, it's it's a representation from a regulatory standpoint okay. uh, issue, right? Well, clearly, Nick, there's going to be much more debate about some of these points, um, and um, so it'll be fun. It'll be a it'll be a hot summer, uh, you know, global warming or not. We're going to have a hot summer here on Top Traders Unplugged. I I sense that. Anyways, uh, as always, Nick, thank you so much for all of your time. I hope if you enjoy these conversations, you would do us a favor. Take five minutes of your time. Go to your favorite podcast player. Leave a rating and review. Uh, make sure you share it with the five of your colleagues or friends. Um, we, we desperately would like to help more people um, to um, think about, I would say, not tell them what to do, but think about of ways to uh, build better portfolios, frankly, safer portfolios uh, in that sense. Anyways, uh, next week, uh, I am together with someone who definitely knows a lot about building um, safer and better performing portfolios, which is Alan. So if you have any questions for him to tackle, um, please send them over to info at toptradersonplot.com. With that, from Nick and me, thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.